Welcome to Sensemaking. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm an integrated life and business coach, the creator of The Sovereign, and a seasoned wellness practitioner. I believe in investigating the truth. I mean the whole truth. And I bring on sensemakers of all kinds who are brave enough to poke holes in commonly accepted narratives. The world is wild, my friends. And with censorship, cancel culture, and pretend uniformity of opinion, we need more sensemakers who are willing to be who they authentically are, bringing their real-life stories and evidence to the table. Sensemaking will challenge how you feel about a variety of topics from health, politics, spirituality, culture, and more. I want to free you from thinking that you have to go along with the narratives. But mostly, I hope you find yourself in the stories we share here, sparking the idea that, hey, I'm not so alone in my thinking, after all. Buddy, season two, I told you we were coming out with a bang. (laughs) I am so freaking excited about all the guests that we have with us in season two. With censorship, um, coming down hard from our terrifying government, I'm putting more and more effort into my content outside of social media apps. Guys, I'm worried. I'm really worried. I'm concerned. Um, I've put a lot of time into growing my communities on these apps. And I don't know if you've been watching the censorship bills around the corner, but social media is only step one. If you look at the censorship bills that are around the corner, this is just step one. The Trudeau government wants to go further. They want to censor websites. They want to fine people for offensive speech. They want to target you for pre-crime, which is very 1984. For that reason, I'm going to get louder than ever while I still can. While I still can. I, You know what? I, I took a moment thinking, you know, maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it's actually 1984 dangerous for me to be doing this stuff. And you know what, gang? I'm going to go out with a bang. If, if that's where we're at, I'm going to do my very best with the time I have. And hopefully I build an army of y'all <laughs> and uh, we dismantle this thing. Freedom of speech is incredibly important. Offending people is not violence. And the same people calling words violence are the same people that are actually committing real violence, physical violence. So let's just call a spade a spade here. Today, I have a super special episode with Dr. Harvey Reich. I'm in awe here. I'm, I'm fangirling a little bit. Dr. Harvey Reich is a next level expert. I'm going to be listing off his credentials. And honestly, there's so many big words in this introduction. I'm probably butchering them. I'm embarrassed to even say. I can't even list the amount of papers and degrees this man has. Dr. Harvey Reich is affiliated with The Wellness Company, who I'm also a proud member of. What I want to do more than 
anything for you guys is not just talk about the problems of the world. I want to talk about solutions. The wellness company has a lot of big things up up their sleeves. They have product solutions to help you get spike out of the body. Both my husband and I are both on spike because whether you got spike in your body from the vaccine, from shedding, which we confirm in this podcast is a thing, or from the virus itself, it's something that you want out of your body. I actually just got COVID for the second time and I took the uh, spike product the entire time and you know what, it went in and out of my body so fast. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in this episode, uh, the dangers of spike, but we're going way back. We're going way back to the beginning of this whole medical conundrum. Uh, We're talking about the uh, military pressure, the psyop that happened the last three years. And we're going to go into some solutions. We're going to go into some solutions because that's what I'm all about. If you want to get um, the same TWC uh, spike product that I'm taking, I'm going to take it in the show notes. I honestly, guys, I think everybody should be on this right now. I'm also taking the mitochondrial support uh, to build up my immunity and keep my cells healthy and my head clear. Um, This episode is also brought to you by my community, The Sovereign. Guys, I do the podcast for fun. The Sovereign is how I not only pay the bills, but it's how I support you guys. I've done a lot of things in my life, and we live in wild times. And what I've done with the Sovereign is infuse everything that I'm good at into one tight little container of awake individuals. I'm a coach by profession, so three times a week, I meet with everybody in the Sovereign to talk about their mindset, to talk about their businesses, to talk about how they move forward in a wild world. You get my online wellness studio with practices for your mental and physical health because now is the time to be stronger than ever, to keep yourself out of the hospital, (laughs) and to find a sense of peace in the present moment no matter what's going on. The community in the Sovereign is next level. Guys, these are good humans. They're not just awake. They are forward Focus. There's no doomsday preppers in there. Nobody is doom and gloom. These are people that are awake to the world and know what's happening, and they understand that it's time to level up in health, wealth, and freedom systems. Every month, I bring in experts to talk about everything from financial security to food security to essential sovereign skills, natural health. Literally, guys, it's the only membership you're ever going to need. But enough about me. I want to get into this episode. Um, It's a long one, and it's worth every second. You're going to want to hear what Dr. Harvey Reich has to say and the solutions. There's going to be some surprising conclusions in this episode, so saddle up. Get your AirPods ready, or maybe not AirPods, like let's ditch the Bluetooth, get your old-fashioned headphones, plug and play, and let's get into the show. 
Hey, hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway, and I have with me today Dr. Harvey Reich. Uh, Dr. Reich, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, like I said before the show, I've been watching you and the videos you've been putting out, the pieces that you've written. Um, it's it's an honor to be here with you and hear your thoughts on what happened the last three years. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Happy to share my thoughts. I'll give a little intro here for uh, for any listeners that maybe aren't familiar with your work. Uh, Dr. Harvey Reich is a professor of epidemiology at, and public health at Yale. He was a faculty member in epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Toronto. He's the associate editor of the Journal of National Cancer Institute, editor of the International Journal of Cancer, and for six years was a member of the Board of Editors, the American Journal of Epidemiology. Dr. Rich is an author of more than 400 original peer-reviewed research publications in the medical literature, and those research papers have been cited by other scientific publications more than 49,000 times. So anyone listening at home, we have the real deal here with us. We have someone <laughs> that knows a, a little bit about infectious diseases, medicine, science. Um, is there anything that you would like to add to that? Uh, I think that's a good sketch of uh, where I've come from. I'm now Professor Emeritus at Yale. I still have an appointment and I'm still doing scientific research and still have grants going on, but I'm Emeritus technically. Amazing. Where to start? It's been a while three years. Um, let's let's go way back then. Um, when COVID started to happen, when everything started kicking up here, when did you know that something was off? When did you know that you needed to take a stand against the narrative that was being pushed on everyone? Well, those are actually separate questions. When I took a stand happened first, and it was only sometime after that that I realized that something systematic was wrong uh, in the, the public discussion. So what happened was uh, I'm a, an epidemiologist, uh, career long. I have worked mostly in cancer epidemiology, but I did my PhD after medical school in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. I published a paper. Then I did a postdoc in epidemiology at the University of Washington, where I got steered into cancer research. And for most of my career, it was that way, although I've also been teaching uh, advanced and intermediate and even introductory epidemiologic methods to our uh, MPH and PhD students at Yale for 30 plus years. And what happened was in about March of, of 2020, as the pandemic was progressing and governors started locking down their states, Connecticut did the same. And because I'm a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, the Academy decided to create an ad hoc out-of-the-box committee to assist the governor in formulating plans about reopening the state. The governor had his his own personal uh, advisory committee, but we were kind of the out-of-the-box scientists. So there was me, there was my dean at the time, Stan Vermund, who is a pediatric um, and AIDS uh, epidemiologist, clinical person. There was a cardiologist, there was a clinical psychologist, some physicists, a jet plane engine designer who knows about airflow and things like that. We were a, a very motley 
intellectual crew trying to get a handle on everything that might be reasonable to think about for reopening. And, and in that, my task was to look at outpatient treatment. At that point, uh, DDA Rau, who is a very, very well-known, uh, widely published infectious disease epidemiologist in Marseille in France, had published a, an initial foray into early treatment, a paper that, while I didn't exactly agree with how he analyzed it. He provided the raw data to what he analyzed in an appendix to the paper. And so I reanalyzed it for myself, decided that there was validity in what he had written. And that propelled me to be thinking about hydroxychloroquine, which had been used by his institute, him and his institute. Um, the clinician, Dr. Um, Zev Zelenko in upstate New York, and others around the world who had been exploring use for treating COVID patients as soon as they got diagnosed or, or felt sick. And so I did wrote a review paper on this, looking at all of the research publications that had been published or and what clinicians who are treating COVID patients who had treated hundreds of thousands of patients by that point already were telling me about their experience. And I also included remdesivir because that was potentially going to be an outpatient treatment, not just a hospital treatment. So I, I analyzed all this, wrote a, a long meta-analysis and review paper on this. It was reviewed by the editors of the American Journal of Epidemiology and then published uh, in that journal and got a lot of attention. And mm -hmm. the strange thing about that attention was that we showed in that paper, I showed in that paper that hydroxychloroquine use when started in high-risk people in the first five or so days of symptoms dramatically reduces the risk of getting hospitalized or dying from this illness. And that was in the original strain that, that at that time in the United States, which was much more virulent than the current one. Mm -hmm. In any event, so I published that. I wrote an op-ed for um, uh, Newsweek magazine because hydroxychloroquine is such a safe and widely used medication around the world that there was no downside to actually trying it in a much more general way. In a pandemic, in an emergency, you don't need to prove efficacy. You need to prove lack of harm, okay? That harm could include opportunity costs, meaning if you start using a medication that you don't know if it works, if it's displacing something else that does work or you have better evidence for, then there's an opportunity cost. But there was no opportunity cost at the beginning of the pandemic. This is a medication that's been used in tens of billions of doses by hundreds of millions of people over 65 years around the world in pregnant women, in infants and children and frail elderly, universally, um, with virtually no downsides and and with, without worrying about all possible things that could interact with it and, and so on. It is a very safe medication when used in the doses that everybody all clinicians know how to use it. And the surprising thing was the amount of pushback. But the pushback wasn't logical. The pushback was, oh, we did this study in hospital patients and it doesn't work there. Therefore, the study in outpatients is, is doesn't you can't possibly be true. So there were these uh, news reports talking about irrational conditions, not used in high-risk people, used in young people, used in the hospital setting, and so on, that made no, were of no relevance to what I had published on early outpatient use. Then there were a few randomized trials that were hastily conducted to try to disprove any 
benefit of hydroxychloroquine use. Those trials were also in low-risk people, by and large, and they didn't even have outcomes of relevance to what people, clinicians and public health people think is important. What's important in COVID is not dying and back up one step, not getting hospitalized and back up one step, not having long viral illness syndrome that could be debilitating. So the outcomes we were first looking at were hospitalization and mortality. And then the pushback was getting was, oh, well, in, in our randomized trial, people who took hydroxychloroquine didn't have any shorter duration of, of symptoms or, or didn't have any shorter duration of virus that we could colonize from the nose or that we could, that we could measure on PCR from the nose. These were irrelevant outcomes. And yet this is what the media, media were reporting as why hydroxychloroquine didn't work when in fact it did work, does work, has worked, will work. And so, so the, what triggered me to something unusual and systematic going on was all of this irrational pushback that was occurring in June, July of 2020 when a very simple, serious, scientific, rational understanding of the empirical data showed that this medication works very well for what it's needed to do to prevent people from being hospitalized and dying. And that is all gone from there. That was the linchpin of the pandemic, the suppression of early treatment, which would have obviated the need for all the things like remdesivir, which does not work well and, and is very harmful, uh, the vaccines, which could have played a role, but not such a grandiose, overwhelming role that, that has harmed, you know, millions of people around the world in various ways, you know, in, and it's of which its efficacy has been much more limited than, than we were told in the outset and all during the pandemic. It would not, we would not have needed the great degree of usage of those tools had we treated early with hydroxychloroquine. And now we know there's other medications like ivermectin and, of course, vitamin D that everybody should be taking anyway. And, um, you know, and steroids like budesonide, which is a mild inhaled steroid and so on. We, we know what all of the, the early treatments or many of the early treatments are that work. Had we used those, we would have never gotten to where we are now. The thing that red pills me every single time when I think about the early stages of this, anytime I started to second guess myself, I remember that, that they suppressed early treatment. And I was very lucky in the beginning stages of this. Um, there was an awake doctor that was coming through my community on his way to Ottawa for the protests. And he ended up staying at my in-laws bed and breakfast. And we met and we talked and he said, if you ever get sick, this is what you'll take. And he gave us a prescription for ivermectin, vitamin D, quercetin, uh, bentadine, gargles and nose spray. So I had a whole protocol and something in me was just clicked. If this is the world's most severe pandemic, this virus is so severe why did they give no advice about how to take care of yourself at home? Nothing. They just said, best of luck. And if you can't breathe, then come to the hospital and we'll put you on a ventilator. That idea alone is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. They didn't give anyone anything to do at home. So uh, that actually is an astute observation that, that reflects an underlying value of doing that and not just a passive, we don't know what to do, that there was a definite reason for that. 
And that is one of the biggest facets of this pandemic has been the psychop, the psychological military level operation of instilling fear in everyone, everyone, all the way up to the president of the United States. That fear has made the government, the military, and the population all controllable by the top of the military that had a rationale for how this pandemic was managed. As you know, five days after the, the emergency was declared in the United States, President Trump handed off management of the pan of a pandemic to the National Security Council, which is a top of, of the U.S. military. That militarization of the pandemic made this into a war against bioterrorism instead of a pandemic. In a war that you have um, uh, people who are on the sidelines who are harmed in the name of greater good because you think that you are fighting to save an entire country and not fighting to save a very small fraction of high-risk people who would be harmed by the, the so-called bioterrorism. And that collateral damage is a big problem in the thinking of public health. Public health has no reason to consider collateral damage an acceptable uh, side effect of pandemic management. And it would only do that if it generalizes the, ma the management to one and only one treatment protocol, one that's one size fits all for everybody. And therefore, most of the, the, the people are not being managed personally in a way that medicine has traditionally managed individual patients, where each person's care is individualized. So mm -hmm. we had the, the, this false public health messaging coming from the military through the public health agencies, including the CDC and the FDA. And I agree with you that in the middle of all of this propaganda, it really was difficult to try to straighten out what seemed to be reasonable and what not. And I had days where I started, you know, wondering whether I was crazy or the whole world was crazy. And all I had to do was look on the FDA's website, uh, warning against the use of hydroxychloroquine to know that I was right and, and everything was wrong. That webpage is still up today. It stems from July 1st of 2020 which says warning hydroxychloroquine should not be used in outpatients because of serious risk of cardiac rhythm abnormalities. And, and that's actually a fraud because underneath it, in small print, it says, we base this assertion on data from one study of hospital patients. Well, every clinician who's treated COVID knows that hospital disease is a, a cytokine storm uh, pneumonia that is totally different than the viral replication flu-like phase of the illness in the first five or six days. That when you've got a cough, headache, sore throat, runny nose, fever, uh, muscle aches, tiredness, that's what you get in a viral illness. That's what you get when you get the flu. That's what you get when you have a, a, a bad cold or an RSV infection and so on. That's a viral respiratory illness. That is not the same as can't breathe, oxygen levels down into 40 or 50%, lungs filled with immune system debris, that is a totally different illness with a totally different treatment. And mm -hmm. so the FDA was saying that hydroxychloroquine might have been risky for patients with this pneumonia in the hospital, and therefore outpatients shouldn't be treated with it. And you can understand the obvious conclusion is that had the FDA actually had 
systematic data about harms in outpatients, they would have quoted those data. They would have said, we've we've observed outpatients and they've had cardiac rhythm irregularities, therefore you should not take it. They didn't say that at all. They said this other data from hospital patients, which doesn't apply. So that means they didn't have data on outpatient usage. Nevertheless, they were saying this. So, so this fraud is still there. It's obvious to anybody with who just stops and thinks about what they're actually saying there. And and so that tells you all of the, the the level of mismanagement and propaganda of this pandemic going all the way to the top. And that's what's characterized the, the pandemic through, for the whole time. So they're not giving an accurate portrayal of what the safety profile of, of, of HCQ is. And they're saying, we'll prove it and give us evidence that it's safe. Meanwhile, while pushing a vaccine without having any idea what it's going to do in the beginning, mandating it in the beginning. So they wanted proof of HCQ, yet here, let's just let the let's just let the vaccine fly and everyone has to take it or else. Well, right. I mean, it's major hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, I, this was their uh, modus operandi probably from the very beginning that they knew this was going to be a vaccine platform that they wanted to roll out in a much more general way than the the COVID pandemic that the military, the government military institution thinks that it's the mRNA platform where you can swap in and out the genetic code of, of the the bioterrorism agent du, du jour, you know, to to treat the population to prevent the illness in the population on a moment's notice, and this is an, an utter fantasy created by people with with rudiments of biological knowledge and rudiments of viro- virology knowledge who don't understand that it takes three months to get working a new vaccine, even in the mRNA platform, and it takes another two to three months to get this um, shipped and delivered and into people's arms and starting to work in the field. And in six months, the virus, all of these respiratory viruses have come and gone. The, uh, so their substrains have already mutated out, away from the one that was targeted in these vaccines. They're thinking, oh, it's going to be like flu. Well, flu is a seasonal illness and happens to occur in the Southern Hemisphere about, on average, six months earlier than the nor- Northern Hemisphere. And that six-month lead time is enough time to develop flu vaccines against what you think is going to be the circulating virus in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I wouldn't want to live in Australia because there's no lead time. But in any event, that that six-month lead time from seasonality has not been shown to occur with COVID. There is no apparent seasonality with a different seasonality in Southern Hemisphere than Northern Hemisphere, at least not yet, hasn't been proven. And therefore, there's no reason to think that we can get a handle in enough lead time to make a vaccine that's going to apply, even if it were a vaccine that worked and were safe, that's even going to apply. The the bivalent vaccines that are still being pushed by the the FDA and CDC here in the U.S. and Health Canada for you guys um, are just uh, they're out of date. They they targeted BA four and BA five substrains of Omicron that are, are long gone. The the current one that's circulating is BA BQ uh, XBB dot one dot five is already three weeks going away, being supplanted by XVB.1.9.1 and 2, and XVB.1.16, which are are coming and will peak probably in another two to three months. 
This is the way the virus works. By the time you get into the field with your vaccines, they're already weakened compared to the strains that are uh, substrains that are currently circulating. It's a failed theology, and that this uh, aside from the fact that of all the harm that these vaccines have created, the idea that you're going to use a novel, untested uh, vaccine platform that has failed in, for 10 years in veterinary models, in livestock, where it, where in, in livestock these vaccines only work for a year at most and, and fail, you, you just cannot, there, there's no rational um, reason to think that this is going to work other than incompetence, biological, virological incompetence at the highest level of government and military. Well, it is. And it's, it's terrifying that I'm in a position now where I no longer t- trust public health. I don't trust medicine. So in, in Canada, we're still pushing it on children. Um, in the province of British Columbia, they're mandating four of these injections for nurses, saying that you are a danger to nurses that are vaccinated. So if you're unvaccinated, you're a danger, which of course we know is not true because they don't prevent transmission. Knowing that at the base level, our health professionals don't even have that knowledge is terrifying. And we could be in a position one day where there's a pandemic or a virus that has a higher death rate. And I personally will never trust modern medicine or like maybe there is a vaccine I should take one day. I'm not taking it after this colossal, colossal screw up especially because no one is admitting the mistakes that were made. No one is willing to say, well, lockdowns weren't a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't have mandated this vaccine. Oh, maybe we should have gotten early treatment. No one is willing to do that. They're just still pushing this narrative. And that's terrifying right now. I really don't understand the idiocy idiocy of of the British Columbia Public Health uh, Administration the CDC on August 11th of last year said that the vaccines don't work for public health. They said more specifically that two doses of the vaccine does not convey reduction in transmission and a booster doses convey a benefit that is transient and wanes. And if you ever hear transient and wanes in the same sentence of a public of public health, then you know that that's not a public health guideline because public health has to be more prolonged, that you cannot be giving these vaccines every six, eight weeks. in order to maintain something that's transient. And so this is CDC's admission that the vaccines are not a tool anymore, as if they ever were, but certainly not now for controlling the pandemic. The CDC has completely removed itself from messaging that these vaccines control transmission. And uh, it's, it's obvious that the uh, public health people in British Columbia either don't read American English or don't understand it because that somehow has not moved them to think that anything different has occurred and that vaccinating nurses will do absolutely anything to to control the spread. In fact, there's evidence, at least for the Moderna vaccines, if not Pfizer, that after about 150 days, they have negative efficacy, which means that they've clobbered the immune system so much that there's increased risk of getting covid not not decreased risk. And and somehow this hasn't penetrated in, into the uh, BC Public Health Administration. It's remarkable. So we have a, a military level control mechanism on, on the narrative on what people are allowed to do. 
Do you think that has to do with the origins of COVID and where it came from? Um, I think it, it, it was a rationale, an excuse made by the idea that this was a bioterrorism agent. In fact, it was, but this bioterrorism agent was engineered by Dr. Ralph Barrick in his laboratory, his research laboratory, in conjunction with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was funded through EcoHealth Alliance, which is a shell company created by uh, Dr. Dashek, Peter Dashek, um, who was funded by NIH, NIAID, um, and um, the Department of Defense, and apparently the U.S. State Department and other parts of the government to the tune of $60 million or more to study the nature of what happens when you make a, a more or less innocuous animal virus, a bat virus, into one that will infect humans. And the gain-of-function research was described perfectly well in two papers that Dr. Barrick published with first author Menachery in 2015 and 2016. He describes exactly how to go about making this gain-of-function virus to, to infect humans. And the whole process was sketched out in a grant application called Project Diffuse, D-E-F-U-S-E, that you can Google, Google and find and read all about all the technology of how to make this gain-of-function research virus. And there's, there's bioengineering information in the virus itself that comes from Moderna patents from 2017 and other years in that period that show that and 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 these these genetic uh, strings are nowhere else in any other organisms that show that this has been an engineered a human engineered pathogen virus now we don't know why or how it was released whether it was intentional or accidental however i don't know i mean and, and that may never be known but we do know that this was an engineered virus and it was created because of at least sloppy research processes at the Wuhan Institute in a BSL-2 lab where it should never have been uh, been working on. It should have been in their BSL-4 lab, which is a much more secure laboratory facility. And that it should, and it, it was foolhardy to ever claim that research on these terrifying pathogens should ever have been conducted in the first place. All of this was predicated on the idea that if we make these the, these catastrophic viruses, and then once we know what they are, we can make vaccines for them. So if they ever get out, we can control them and protect the population. This is a fantasy. And sure. the reason it's a fantasy is that you take any one of those severe pathogens and you tweak it just a little bit, and the vaccine that you just made no longer works. And now you're six months behind to having to make a new one while this is doing is reaping its damage all over the world. There has never been a gain-of-function research a pathogen that has had a successful vaccine made for it over the last 20 or 30 years. So this has been one of the plausibility, the fake plausibility arguments for how we got into the, the stupidity and foolhardiness of experimenting, that our enemies are going to be making these pathogens, and therefore we need to make them faster so we know how to control them. It, there is no benefit to making them. The benefit is to making vaccines once we know what's out there and having a system where we can make a vaccine in a week, not in three months, if that were possible. And if the vaccines were safe and if we didn't have any outpatient treatment, then there's a rationale for this. 
But we have outpatient treatment for all, mostly all respiratory viruses. There's evidence now to believe that hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, steroids, uh, and so on will work, may work for flu, RSV, and other respiratory virus illnesses that they have there's a commonality of effect of of what these medications do that if that don't directly work on the virus it directly works on the human immune system responding to the virus which protects the body from overreaction which is what you need it really it doesn't matter so much if people are uncomfortable with what we call medically a mild illness from this virus so I've had COVID. It was unpleasant and aggravating and lasted a week in its intensity and another two weeks in, in trailing off. Um, it, and I didn't like having it, but I was, nothing ever serious happened because I was medicated by all of these various medications, which kept me likely out of the hospital and, and from dying. And that's the bottom line. It doesn't really matter that people get these illnesses. What matters is that they are protected from being hospitalized and from dying. And the fact that people get the illnesses, even if they're annoying, that gives them a, a much better immunity than the vaccine immunity is the key to solving the, the pandemic. What you need is for the great majority of the public to develop natural immunity in a safe way. And the way it's made safe is by protecting them from overreacting and protecting them from overreacting, their immune system from overreacting, is treating them with medications and maybe monoclonal antibodies and whatever it is that the you know our, our medical science system can develop for doing that that keeps people from being hospitalized not not vaccines that are untested and and potentially harmful and unproven and short-lived and narrowly tailored and and have you know a small number of of antigens that they respond uh, against and not widely so for natural immunity we have a much better system that we've always had for dealing with with uh, population infections, and it has in some cases has included vaccines in childhood uh, for preventing spread, like the MMR vaccines tend to work to promote promote herd immunity. Most of the other childhood vaccines deal with keeping people safe, but not preventing spread. So that is a, a big difference, and one has to deal with how do you keep people safe while they develop natural immunity. And that is the goal of pandemic management. That is what public health has classically done up to COVID. They've never mass vaccinated the entire population and locked them up for 18 months. Well, they've there have been vaccination campaigns against SARS-CoV-1, against MERS. Um, those vaccine campaigns were very short-lived because they were not needed in the first place, because the illnesses were not the same as as COVID, as SARS-CoV-2. They were much more circumscribed, uh, you know, narrow areas like Toronto and Saudi Arabia and, and various other places. So there has, it's, we're not in smallpox land, you know, anymore. SARS-CoV-2 has been an annoying, but very narrowly important uh, virus for a very small but important part of the population, meaning older people or people with serious comorbidities, you know, conditions like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, immunocompromise, history of having had cancer. Those people need to deal with how to be protected best. Everybody else is essentially 
uh, virtually zero risk of any serious outcome from COVID. It does happen. It's rare. And we know how to treat it. And we know how to manage it. And that's how we should have managed this all along. Mm-hmm. Which was a, your, your same approach by the sounds of it to HCQ. You weren't saying give it to everybody. You're saying under certain conditions for certain people, this can be helpful, um, which is what we should have done with the vaccines as well instead of across the board. That's right. I mean, HCQ is so safe that there really is no downside of giving it to everybody. But even but healthy people probably don't need it, didn't need it. And now for the last year and some months since we've been in the Omicron era, where the illness is so much more mild compared to Delta and before, that it, it, whether we even need to use hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin and the other things, in most instances, is, it can be argued that most people do well. And again, the most high-risk people need attention by these things, but almost everybody does well. And for people who have gotten what might be called, long, I call long viral syndrome, people call it long COVID, but it's not long COVID because people get long flu the same way that the cough and, and other aspects of the, of the viral illness can last in some people. It appears that ivermectin can be useful for that, natokinase, can be useful for that, that this is all kind of wild, wild world of, of medicine now of doctors using their intuition and experience treating patients to see how to manage the people who have residuals from the vaccine and from the COVID illness that need to be kind of what I would call cleaned up, fixed up, you know, going forward in, in longer term. And so doctors that I know and, and the wellness company in particular has been doing this has been trying to help people going forward with these apparent chronic conditions that that are don't have you know perfect medical knowledge yet, but it's being acquired. Hmm. Because that that is what's been taken away from doctors is their ability to doctor. Because I remember fighting with my physician at the time, saying, "I know you care about me. I know you trust me, but." I can't listen to your advice because I know you're being pressured. And he said, no, that's not true. Uh, this is my best judgment. You should take the vaccine, to which I showed him a letter from the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario saying, if you do so much as recommend vitamin D to someone, even with being vaccinated, you will lose your license. And I showed him, because of this, I cannot trust what you're telling me because I know you want to keep your job. So what's different about TWC? Because from what I understand, they're really about medical freedom and allowing you to actually doctor and use your intuition and your studies. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the wellness company is trying to do. Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually don't use the term medical freedom very much because that shifts the onus to why aren't we free? How do we get to be free? We should we should be free. It's our right to be free. But that isn't really the issue. The issue is how do we get medicine back to the place where doctors provide the best care? And this has always been the state of medicine when doctors aren't propagandized uh, by the, the, the medical government, the pharma government suppression system that has propagandized medical evidence for the last 30 or 50 years at least. Now, many doctors 
got, who doctors go to medical school and they're very smart people. And to some degree, doctors are regimented into, you have to master so much technical knowledge that you, can, you don't have time to think about it. All you have to do is master this body uh, of information so that you can use it and spout back the relevant points at the relevant times with your patients. So you see a patient with this symptom, it means this di differential diagnosis, these things could be happening, and you go test those things. It's, it becomes, to a certain degree, rote, without thought. However, as you know, that when the information you're presented by the industry is contradictory and you, you have your previous thoughts that are somehow different because of what you learned up to the point of, a, of the pandemic and now what you're being told is different than how you've practiced medicine, then you have to say as a doctor, because this isn't making sense, I have to start thinking about why and how and what to do about this and draw my own conclusions. And doctors don't really want to do that because it means you have to go back to the medical literature and reread all those studies and figure them out for yourself and not read all of the derivative things like Medscape and, and um, other media that are distilling all of the, the medical studies with a slant towards who's funding the, the, those web media yeah. and this takes work and it extends to the medical journals themselves which have been highly funded by pharma companies and have provided slanted and in some cases dishonest publications um, that doctors have normally believed you would think that the new england journal of medicine would be a reliable source but as we know it's not uh, it's published nonsense papers um, not infrequently over the pandemic and probably before. And Marcia Angel, who was the editor of it, complained about it bitterly about all of this stuff for her years in the early 2000s. And so this stuff has been going on. And who to trust is the big question that I'm asked both by doctors and lay people all the time. And I say, there is no one to trust, including me. You know, I'm a subjective person and try to be as subjective as I can, but I'm still filtering the medical literature as best I can. You have to do the same. You have to try as best you can to understand what the original studies are saying and make sense of them. And that means not just published studies, but pre-printed studies that are in things like Meta Archive and the other preprint servers where studies are initially published before they're peer-reviewed. Everybody has to read those studies and draw their own conclusions. There's no other way around it. It's a free-for-all in medicine today because of all of the corruption by pharma of all of the, the media providing airing of medical research, and, and it's difficult. And one of the things that we've tried to do in the wellness company is compile all of the information that we use for forming medical opinions on diagnosis and treatment into a repository of papers and publications that can be read and searched in order to try to draw rational conclusions. We're trying to be as transparent as we can in order to provide the best medical care. But then the other part of that is once you've drawn the conclusions, once you've figured out what the, better, the best care that you think of is to do, then you have to be able to go and do it. And so we're doing this in, in the wellness company through telemedicine, which is face-to-face -face Zoom telemedicine, not email, but 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 face-to-face, -face, which al allows a much better exchange the way you would see a, a doctor in person as best as possible 
under under Zoom, say, um, and and we have sources for providing prescriptions that doctors write that some pharmacies in, in the United States, for example, won't fill, but many will or some will, and we have access to those. And the doctors have been very effective in treating patients both with outpatient COVID and with long COVID, long viral syndrome and and vaccine damage. They've been treating all of those conditions very effectively uh, across the United States so far, and mm-hmm. and and a very in a very cost effective way. That this is you know there's no insurance involved. The the uh, doctor visits I think are sixty dollars something like that, and um, which is not that much more than a copay that people pay for for doctor visits here in the U.S. and and so this is a, a very workable system that is essentially allowing doctors just to get back to doing their best as doctors. And, and that's what we want to do because that's where patients benefit when they're all there's all this interference by conflicts of interest, pressing mm-hmm. doctors not to do what the doctors think is best. 100%. Yeah, we need new systems, which is what it sounds like what TWC is doing. What you said too about the pressure on doctors, you know, in in Canada here, our, our socialist healthcare is crumpling. It's under so much pressure and strain. And I live in a really small community here. So the doctors here are, they're educated. They care about people. But the I know for a fact how overworked they are. They work day and night. They're always the ones on call. They don't have time nor desire to go home and research things. They go into work. What's the protocol? Okay, that's what we do. So it's not because they're bad people or uneducated that they have no idea why there's so many cases of myocarditis right now, for example. I've heard them talk about that. It's, it's never been put on their radar. And it's just practically because they're too busy. They don't have a second. What's the protocol? Here we go. Tell me about the uh, telehealth medicine that TWC is is offering. I know you're doing a lot of calls with people that are vaccine injured or maybe experiencing long COVID. What are the things? Um, are there certain things that you're treating? Is it everything through the telehealth medicine? Our aim really is to be, uh, at least for now, primary care medicine with some areas of specialties. For example, cardiology. Um, we are uh, growing. We've only been out seeing patients this way since October of last year. Um, so uh, we are in in a fairly early stage of the the scale of this. However, we're now exploring having brick and mortar actual clinics uh, on the ground to be able to uh, um, enable patients to have actual in-person visits with doctors. In, in the same kind of care. Um, I think that this is a recognition that medical care has, as you described it, been so terrorized that the doctors have to fall in line and do what they're allowed to do from on high, dictated to. And I think that that in Canada, the socialized medicine model might have been theoretically good at the outset, but the problem is that as a society becomes um, what I will say is poorer and poorer, that the government funds the, the medical care system less and less. 
and that makes doctors fewer and fewer, makes their hours longer and longer, and 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 makes it harder to provide provide quality care. It makes waiting times for procedures and doctors longer. It means that there's only one MRI scanner in the whole province, or I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea that oh. <laughs> you know that that the when you cut back on the money, you cut back on the care. And that's been the problem that there's no check and balance on that. And the Canada right now is a and the national government has a lock on the uh, elected office between the NDP and the Liberal Party, who are both uh, high up members of the World Economic Forum in collusion to control the country, according to the WEF. And half the government ministers are also World Economic Forum aligned. And, and so, you know, it, it's sad. I lived in, in Toronto for eight years. I loved living there at the time. Um, it's just sad what's happened to the country uh, as an exaggeration of, of where um, a wholesome democracy should really be. It, 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 I find it very saddening, and, uh, you know. Um, so our model for medical care ignores all of that because there's no insurance involved. Yes, there are some people, uh, you know, in, in low socioeconomic status who might not be able to afford $60 for a medical care visit, or if they need three or four of them over time to, you know, to deal with things. But again, those are people here in the United States who may not even have any insurance at all. Or people, our, our ideal is for people to have only catastrophic care insurance, that if you get into a traffic accident, or you you suddenly get diagnosed with cancer and need surgery and uh, and chemotherapy and radiation and so on. The big ticket care is what needs insurance. Day-to-day -day medical care in general does not need insurance because the activities of doctors and lab tests and so on tend to be relatively low cost. And so that is the key to why the wellness company can provide entry-level outpatient medical care in a very successful way because it's intrinsically low care compared to big ticket medicine and th that's why our, our care model works really well and and i think that it's it's successful we're not the only telemedicine company you know in the united states there's many more that even the insurance companies are have have established telemedicine company branches for them because they see it's a very cost effective way than having to support you know, brick and mortar infrastructure uh, of doctors' offices and clinics, which is a maintenance and overhead cost that's not part of telemedicine. But all of those telemedicine groups, by and large, still adhere to all the strictures of of, of official consensus medicine and not individualized medicine. And so, there's no point in going to a telemedicine company that's run by your insurance carrier because your insurance carrier is dictating what the your doctor can and can't do or tell you or prescribe mm -hmm. and that's not individual medical care what okay. you what you need is individual medical cares but there are there are other telemedicine groups who are like wellness company we have uh there, there's room in the united states for a dozen of those companies so uh in particular we do not feel particularly competitive we feel supportive of all the companies who are doing this, and we are espousing to do a really good job with our telemedicine, but but respect that other people, other companies are trying to do the same. Hmm. 
The wellness company also makes products. Can you tell me about, I was trying to look on my desk here for mine. I'm currently taking the, the spike protocol, my husband as well. My husband's First Nation, so they all got lined up as fast as possible in Canada. So he's received two shots. So I made sure to get him the spike protocol as well as for myself. Um, now, some people might be listening and A, not know really how damaging spike is, or they think, well, I wasn't vaccinated, so it doesn't matter. Um, can you speak to the importance of breaking down something like spike in the in the body and, and where they might have gotten it? Well, the spike protein is the essence of the mRNA vaccines, that they are the genetic code to make the spike protein. The spike protein it was viewed as the, the antigen of salience for the immune system to respond to by vaccination. And it is the major antigen that sticks on the surface of the virus when you get infected and what the immune system does respond to. Although there's dozens more surface antigens on the virus itself, probably 40 or more, that the immune system responds to in addition to the spike. However, the spike antigen um, protein is what gets the virus into the human cells to reproduce the virus. It does this by being snipped apart by an enzyme called furin, and that exposes part of, of the spike protein to cells that will gobble it up, gobble up the virus. And so the spike protein, in addition, has various other properties that are toxic to the body. For example, it since when the cells make the spike protein, the spike protein then, in addition to being released into the blood, get, gets extruded onto the outside surface of cells, like cells of the, the lung, um, for example, um, or in some cases, muscle cells, and uh, like heart muscle. And so these spike proteins on the surface of the cell are kind of in immune public view. The immune system sees these and responds and thinks that these cells are invading uh, pathogens, not human cells with a toxic molecule on their surface. And so this generates inflammation, which is why the, the spike protein itself it can create some inflammation in various places. Now, the spike protein, turns out, can get to all sorts of parts of the body that we know this from a study done by Pfizer in Japan that was leaked and, and got out into the medical scientific community showing that within 48 hours, the spike will accumulate in the ovaries and in various other organs of the body and into the brain and heart and, and essentially everywhere, including the lining of the blood vessels. And the spike protein can enhance the clumping of red blood cells, which causes clotting. It can cause clumping of, of red blood cells and immune molecules to the surface of, of the, the tiny arteries, arterioles, and capillaries in, in the blood, which causes clotting and, and blocking of oxygenation of, of the, the organs where this happens. And so this is a toxic effect that can happen in nervous system tissue around the body. It can happen in the lungs. It can happen in the kidneys. It can happen essentially in every organ in the body. And this is why the... Um, adverse uh, events of both va vaccination and long COVID tend to be 
highly variable. It depends on which organ is being affected as to what you see. So you can see clotting problems, you can see neurological problems, you can see cognitive problems, you can see other problems. And they, they all boil down to a toxic part of the virus, generally the spike protein, that is creating havoc in the particular place where it got to. And so the goal of the spike product that you're taking that that the wellness company is selling is a, it's a supplement of things that are thought to help deconstruct the spike protein take the spike protein apart and, and dispose of it and reuse for what it's worth the the molecular components of the spike protein to to reduce the toxic function of what it does and uh, natokinase is, is an enzyme that um, has been seen in, in lab studies to break down spike protein. Some of it is absorbed through the GI system, through the gut. And so we believe helps to function to do that. This is not proven. Our supplements for sale in the wellness company have evidence for them. And one of the things about being transparent is we list all the studies that we have that you can go click on and look up and read for yourself and see why we're motivated to include these various uh, ingredients in these supplements. Um, the supplements, as you know, since you purchase them, are not cheap compared to buying vitamin D in, you know, on Amazon or, or the, the grocery store or whatever because they have five or six ingredients, but we've priced them. And if you were to buy the individual ingredients, you would be paying a lot more than what they sell for on the wellness company and of course and we've sourced all these ingredients from u.s sources not from china or india to be sure that what you're paying for is actually the strength and quality and, and purity of what you're getting so there's cost to doing all of that we recognize that it's a little more expensive than you might think but we think it's worth it it's in the middle range of what it costs to buy supplements these days and we think it's worth it we have a, a bunch of supplements these were all custom designed based on scientific evidence for what we think is efficacy for their purpose. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't prove that they work. We, we've had now some clinical experience showing that the that people who've had spike problems in long COVID have ameliorated those problems using the spike formula over a couple of months. This is, again, kind of anecdotal clinical evidence this is all we can do right now. We're we're going to be uh, attempting to do some kind of follow-up trials to see uh, in people who've used the products um, in the, the database, we're going to be following up uh, users of, of the supplements to see what their experience has been and try to do a kind um, an ad hoc analysis to see how well these, these products are working or not. But this is our best guess at the moment. I think that says a lot about the company, too, that they are transparent in that way. Um, from what I understand, when you inject spike protein into your body by way of mRNA, it's harder for the body to break it down because that code is continuing to tell the body to produce it. Whereas if you get spike protein in your body because you got the virus itself, that's more likely to break down on its own, yet still may benefit from this process of, of getting it out of your body. Because yeah, just getting the virus can give you long COVID. So it still might benefit you to take something like this to help the body shed this protein. Is that correct? Yes. I think people who've had the virus and are completely asymptomatic after a month or, or so, probably have little to worry about 
as far as continuing spike toxicity in them. There might be things that you could measure that would show that it was still around in some way or another. The, their clotting might still be a little bit off. Their, they might still have um, molecular indicators of the virus was in the heart, but not really of any clinical significance. And that would be in relatively small numbers of people anyway. So by and large, even for most people who successfully had the infection and and are no longer symptomatic, they're probably in good shape. Uh, the people who've been vaccinated, the vaccines stay around a lot longer than the FDA originally said, oh, it, it's only three or four days and, and then it's degraded. That is not true. We know that it can stay around for 30 or 60 days and probably as long as a year in some people that the genetic code of the vaccine was contrived to make it difficult to break down by the enzyme that breaks down RNA. And by substituting one of the, the letters of the genetic code that has a different shape and the enzyme doesn't work for, the breakdown enzyme doesn't work for, for that letter. So uh, that was calculated, but over-calculated. It, it works too well to keep the, the vaccine, uh, the the, the RNA present in cells and therefore keep making the spike protein over a longer period of time. Again, we're really in uncharted territory with this to know how long is really of clinical importance. And one could, I suppose, measure a lot of the laboratory parameters after a month, after two months, after three months. Hard to know. Symptomatic uh, problems are the ones we really are, are the, the first line of treatment, and and that's what we've been aiming at so far. And uh, I'm optimistic that these things have been have been working. Is is shedding a thing? Shedding is a thing. Shedding is shedding the spike protein, not the vaccine. The spike protein being expressed either in body fluids, which generally requires intimate contact, or breathing, which is can happen, but a lot less likely. Um, or off the surface of skin, again, which can happen, but is somewhat less likely. Yes, this was reported in the early stages of the, the vaccine rollout. Um, I heard it a lot from nurses at Yale New, Her New Haven Hospital who were having menstrual irregularities, um, who were reporting them um, that you just didn't seem normal for for reproductive age women. Those I think have declined. I and I don't know how serious those are. It's it's really annoying to to have to go through that and anxiety producing when your your body that works a certain way that you're used to since age eleven or twelve is now doing something different. You know, and what does that mean for the future, etc. But by and large, I think many of those have stabilized. And it's unclear what that means for fertility in, in those women. This is really very uncharted territory, and we don't really know very well how much damage or not those things have caused. And I, I, I know my um, great colleague, Naomi Wolf, has been working on the fertility issues based on data from Pfizer and, and other reports. And um, it's still very hard to know and very early to know exactly how much damage to reproduction and fertility these vaccines have caused. Undoubtedly, there is some, but how much quantifying it and, and how big of a worry this is is still uncertain. 
And some people will just swear left, right, and center that safe and effective. That's all we hear in Canada. And you might get a kick out of this story. I had a friend working at the in level four infectious disease lab in Winnipeg, just a few hours away. Um, the only one in Canada. And in the beginning, when I started questioning things, I was asking her, and probably the wrong person to ask, but I was asking her if it was safe. She works with these viruses all day long. They they work on developing vaccines. And she said, there's no such thing as long-term consequences from vaccines. There's no such thing. That's why they only study it for two weeks after. And you don't have to worry about anything after that time, which immediately I, I thought that's incorrect. But this same lab too, they had uh, a CCP military member disguised as a Chinese scientist go into the lab and this was a story on Global, and I and I asked her as well, what, what was that thing about the Wuhan military member that ended up going into your lab? What happened with that? And she said, oh, the Wuhan thing, that was nothing. And this was right before the pandemic happened. And I said, it sounds like something. What happened? And she said, oh, we just stole some information. <laughs> Pardon? Right before the pandemic happened. <laughs> Oh, it's nothing. Well, you know, you don't study what you don't want to find. If you don't, if you don't want to find long-term consequences of something, you don't study it for long-term. Mm -hmm. Okay. Back. So ask why these studies aren't being done. This has been a major question about why all the studies that our public health agencies should have been doing during the pandemic have not been done because mm -hmm. they don't want to find the answer because finding the answer might disrupt their narrative. It gives me a lot of hope to see what you guys are doing in the States. So yes, products to help you deal with what just happened to us the last three years, products to keep you healthy, but new systems as well, telehealth medicine, um, vaccine exemptions, talking to doctors that are not pushovers, <laughs> doctors that are not focusing on political science, but actual science. Now I know Canada's got some serious gatekeepers but I hear that you're trying your hardest to get these same systems into Canada. And maybe as our healthcare system crumples even more, maybe we'll see some more opportunity. But um, can you say anything about what could potentially come to Canada at this point? Or is it up in the air? I think you will. I think there will be avenues that will be usable in order to do it. And I think that they're just not widely recognized, but they're available and I, I don't know the details of this, so I can't really talk about it, but I'm optimistic that you guys will get comparable access that we've been doing in the United States. Is there any other um, products that TWC is making right now that you think are a good idea for many people to take? Like I've been looking at the mitochondrial support. What, what other products are you excited about right now? Well, I think more than products, where the TWC is offering um, a program of care that's called One Wellness. And what this means is for a subscription price, which I think for an individual is $200 a month, which is not trivial, one gets essentially unlimited doctor visits, face-to-face -face doctor visits, and uh, a month's supply of any or all of the supplements um, on the TWC's uh, sales page. Wow. And, and so if you're a person 
who has some reason why you need two or three doctor visits a month and you're using a couple supplements from us, this becomes cost-effective very quickly. But the idea behind it is that it's our little kind of insurance plan which uh, and low cost compared to what health insurance really costs, which is to say that it removes the motivation to sell supplements and the motivation you know to sell anything that it's up to the user to figure out what they need and obtain it what the what the the patient or the client needs is available and more or less ad lib for their use without having to feel like it would oh i need a different supplement in addition to the one i'm already taking that's going to cost me another 60 dollars why would i do it's all included wow and so the idea is to have a, a, a low-cost price point that is just outpatient medical care delivered by telemedicine. So we recognize it's incomplete. We can't do physical exams by telemedicine. Um, we are l- constantly evaluating kinds of electronic devices that can be used for outpatients to do things like heart monitoring, and other things, you know, smart rings, smart bracelets, all these kinds of, of things that um, can be used in the practice of medicine in a, in a way that can be done remotely. So we're we're really engaged in in examining those kinds of things for potential usage for part of our medical care system. And so th- this is kind of state of the art. This is what makes me the, the, the most excited is to be able to do as much as possible. On a way, you know, and the other thing about telemedicine is we, I think at the moment now, 75% of, of our visits are same day, same day appointments. Um, so yeah. we're trying to be very responsive. There's no sitting in a doctor's office for an hour and a half or two hours. You you, you know, you you time in when your appointment is and, and that's when you get it essentially. And you don't have to drive for long distances to to do it either that it's in the, the comfort of your home and so while it isn't perfect there are advantages to it that kind of offset some of the disadvantages and that's why i'm very optimistic that this is going to be a very good model for outpatient care for a lot of things and as we gear up for specialties that we're going to have care for outpatient um issues we have laboratories we are working and we have x-ray um, facilities that are partnering with us, um, the pharmacies that are partnering with us. We have dental plans that we're partnering with. So th- this is going to be a, a very useful, relatively low cost and accessible medical care system that gets around all of the the enforced corruption of the, that pharma has inflicted on on medicine since the Rockefellers got involved in medicine in the 1920s, but but really much more so in, in the COVID period. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that you're not incentivized by scripts, like we know the pharmaceutical model is, your pharmacist is encouraged to put out max amount of scripts and to sell max amount of drugs. What I know about the wellness company is they're doing their best to get people off of pharmaceuticals. Well, that's another aspect of one of our, our programs is to try to reduce the over-reliance on prescription medications. That one of the, the biggest chronic conditions in the Western world, including the US and Canada, is overweight and obesity, what we call the metabolic syndrome. And 
So people are, are on statins for that. They're on diabetic medications. And these medications are not harmless. They have their own uh, spectrum of adverse effects. And a lot of times there are alternatives that people can do and not just being forced to exercise more every day like I should be too. Um, but but other as, uh, avenues of supplements and things that can be partnered with to reduce or remove reliance on on these medications and and so it doesn't work for everybody but but to the degree that people can be evaluated and and successfully try these plans this is part of of our approach to good medicine good medicine isn't try to max what we can sell good medicine is to max how patients do yeah, not necessarily looking for the easy answer, right? There's just a pill that fixes you. Sometimes there's some work that you have to do. And personally, I don't mind paying for medicine. Um, I, I need some tests right now. There's something going on. And my husband was asking why I paid this integrative medicine doctor for her services when I could just go and get it for free from my GP. And I told him I put in the request at my GP weeks ago. I'm still weeks away from even having an appointment and by the way, they're going to be wearing masks and pushing vaccines on me. So I'm going to go there anyways. Sometimes you get what you pay for. So yes. I love what you mentioned before about maybe we need to pay for smaller things ourselves and outsource the big stuff. Because, yeah, in, in Canada, as far as the system, all our money is going towards funding the little things, which is fine. If I break my leg or I'm going to have a baby, I can get into the hospital really easily. But if something's actually wrong with me, if I think I have cancer, good luck. Good luck getting a test, an MRI in a timely fashion. It's not going to happen. Right. I know. I know. It, it's misplaced priorities and the voters need to take that in consideration. This has been the whole problem that people are voting based on political things, not on things that affect their daily lives. And people have to get away with that, get away from that, that they have to stop being party aligned and be more interests aligned. And, and uh, that means paying attention to who the, the people in the party are, not which party it is. I'm not or, advocating for any party. Or truth aligned. Like the only thing that I care about personally is, is it working? I am not ideological. Is it working? If it's not working, can we stop doing it? And that's what happened during the pandemic. They made it political. They made it ideological. I, I would hear things like, well, I believe in vaccines. Well, what vaccines and for who? You know, I I believe in medicine. Sure. But do I think everyone needs to be on blood thinners? No. <laughs> depends. Right, depends. right. Of course, everything has got a subtlety and a nuance. That's right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time here today. Um, I like that you are so transparent with everything that you're working on, everything that you don't know, the things that you're confident in owning. No, I know this to be true. Um, I know you've taken a lot of heat the last few years, and I just really can't say enough about how much we appreciate people like yourself that were willing to stand in integrity and the truth, no matter the kickback. Cause I know that's not an easy thing to do. Well, thanks. You know, I mean, when, for me, it, it actually is, is quite straightforward because I just go on the scientific evidence. What I've done for 40 years of career is I just try to evaluate the evidence and the facts as best I can. And there's some things that I know, some things I'm not sure of, some things I don't know. And, 
I just re- try to translate nature into English the way I put a science into English is the, the, the all I can do. And, and I think that's the best one should do. Well, I think it's easy to find who's rooted in the truth because you're you're unshakable. Like you said, I, I know what I know. Here's my list of evidence. Here's my credentials. You know, there's some guy on Medium that thinks that he knows more because <laughs> he's a writer for an online news publication. Um, it's easy to tell because the people that are rooted in the truth are able to um, express why. You're able to give reasons why, where people that are unhinged, they're the ones that are just yelling the the touting points, the narrative, their name calling, their defaming other people. Um, you can tell who's telling the truth. I'm glad that that comes across. It's hard from inside the academy to to perceive that. So I'm glad that comes across. Where can people learn uh, more about you? Um, Who are you working with right now other than the wellness company? Where can they hear your talks? Where can they read your articles? Where's the best place for people to source you? Okay, so of course, the first place is twc.health. That's the wellness company. Uh, There's some information about me there. Um, I also have a a Telegram channel, Harvey Risch, MD, PhD, which is, I think, if, if, if that is at a Telegram handle or Telegram channel, something like that, if that's not exactly right, uh, I have a, a web page at Yale. If you just Google Rish, R-I-S-C-H, and Yale, you'll come up with my faculty web page, and it has my Telegram channel listed there, and it's got a little blurb, a paragraph about me. My CV is on there. You can download that and look up any of my 400 whatever papers and all the other stuff. And a number of the things that I've written in lay context are on the Brownstone Institute, which has been growing exponentially as a place for publishing scientific and sociological and political and public interest um, essays and op-eds that has been thriving um, that, that I think is a really excellent resource for, for like-minded people. Amazing. I'll make sure to take all of that in, in the show notes um, so people can find you. Can I ask you one more question? Because sure. it's killing me. Has your view on all vaccines changed after the last three years, or do you think they still have a role? Oh, interestingly, I'm about three quarters through reading the book Turtles All the Way Down, vaccines, science, and myths that talks about all the other vaccines, so to speak. And um, I'm not totally vaccine skeptical. I myself have taken lots of vaccines, but not all and everything. And I think that I'm, I think there's some very good arguments that are made in the book that some of the vaccines, these are really talking about the children's childhood vaccines, some of the vaccines promote herd immunity. They make it difficult for the, the people vaccinated to get the infection. Those vaccines have a rationale for why everybody or almost everybody should take them to remove the organism from society. Because once there's herd immunity in the society, the organism has no other reservoir. These are human viruses, has no other reservoir, and therefore stops existing. And by that method, you protect people who are unvaccinated um, and so on. And and so there's a rationale, at least for um, understanding those vaccines. MMR falls in that class, I believe. 
but there the, the majority of the other vaccines only reduce the severity of the consequences of infection. It doesn't prevent the infection from circulating. And so those vaccines should not be mandated. There's no public health interest, no state or government interest in mandating things that do not prevent the spread of infection. And if a government says, well, it would cost us a lot more in medical care provision, so we'd have to have more doctors and more hospitals to take care of all the patients because now they've they've gotten these illnesses that the vaccine would have prevented. I would say, well, build some more hospitals, hire some more doctors, put the money into that instead of the money into vaccines that don't prevent the spread, even if they do prevent more serious outcomes. Let people choose on the basis of honesty about the vaccines for the things that only affect their potential health and, and not the health of others. And this is where the COVID vaccines have gotten to now that, as I've said before, that their benefits were at most transient, that they've, they're long gone for preventing spread. The CDC has for a long time now not maintained that people should be vaccinated in order to prevent the spread, but they're saying it will reduce the severity of your infection. This is a debatable point, which is another hour of discussion. But But regardless of that, that puts it into the realm of treatment. In other words, do I take the vaccine because I'm hoping I'll get less sick when I get COVID or not? The state has no interest in mandating that. And so I think that I'm, I'm still taking a general vaccine by vaccine viewpoint of things. I've become more skeptical of some of the vaccines, not completely. I think the HPV vaccine, the, the, um, the human papillomavirus vaccine supposedly to prevent cervical cancer has largely been debunked as a as a valid vaccine that does something beneficial to society or to the vaccinated individuals and therefore that's one that that should leave the marketplace but the others there's kind of i still need to understand them better uh, in order to have an expert view on on them that's that's where I said as well. I'm trying to side eye it and not let um, the polarization of this world just send me from one camp to the other, which it's hard. It takes. Uh, well, this is why I call the podcast sense making. I'm trying to just find facts, <laughs> facts that matter. And it might be years before we really fully understand. So I appreciate that you're still open minded about it, because that's that's where I'm trying to sit as well. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll make sure that the show notes has all of the things so people can find you. And uh, I might just see you at some TWC meetings here. <laughs> that would be lovely. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Doesn't it feel good, guys, knowing that we were right about everything? <laughs> you know, before the show, I was looking up uh, some of... Dr. Harvey Reich's videos, some of his articles, and of course I was finding some, some conspiracy theorist talk about him. <laughs> what I get such a kick out of is reading this wonderful man's credentials and then seeing some guy on Medium or CBC spurt some hate above, uh, about the man and their own opinions. You know what? No one else's credentials or record is stacking up to what Dr. Harvey Reich is saying. And it's so easy, personally, to find the people that are rooted in the truth. I think it's easy. 
there's nothing about Dr. Harvey Reich that gets rattled. You can see it in his eyes when you talk. He's unshakable. He knows what he's talking about. The extent of his expertise in all these different fields is like no other, right? He still managed to maintain his position at Yale, yet you have these random journalists fact-checking people that actually know what they're talking about. It's wild. You guys know it's wild. I'm not spouting anything new here. But I hope you guys really like this episode. I'm going to be bringing in more doctors and pharmacists that are awake (laughs) and know what's going on. Personally, I will never see a health practitioner again that isn't awake. It really matters right now. And I want to stress again, it's it's not because someone else isn't educated or they're not a good person. Our systems are crumbling. And I just want everyone to remember that. Um, when I keep in mind the, the doctors that I know here, they're such good people. They're very well educated. They're just under such extreme pressure. They're so dang busy because healthcare in Canada is not good. It's crumbling. It's falling apart. So I don't fault doctors ever. I don't fault nurses. I think they are just trying to keep their head above water. But I'm grateful, very grateful for the doctors that are awake, that have tapped into their intuition, that want to follow real science over political science, and are willing to risk it all in order to tell the truth. Not an easy thing to do, but an essential thing to do. So thank goodness we have options. Um, I'm really excited to see what the wellness company creates in Canada. Guys that are already in the United States, they're doing it. They're doing the work. They have privatized clinics. So hopefully they can get past the gatekeepers in Canada and we're good to go. So currently you can't book appointments with the doctors in Canada. It sounds like it could happen soon, but you can get on some of these products that can help you transition off of pharmaceuticals. You can take the products that help to break down spike in the body. You can help strengthen your heart, your immune system. They have so many amazing products. So I'm going to take that again in the show notes. Um, I just think everyone needs to be on it right now because the last place I want to end up right now, y'all, is a hospital. Thanks for listening to the show today. Um, I hope you got a lot of value. Please uh, share this episode to your Instagram. Tag us. We'll make sure to tag you. Uh, We'll get you in front of our audience. We appreciate all the love, all the messages. We're super grateful for you guys over here at Sensemaking. And I can't wait for season two. I can't wait. (laughs) Anyways, guys, I'm starting to blabber. So I'm going to run. But thank you for listening to the show. And I'll see you guys next time.